I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Stony Brook. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitters Club. Today we're discussing Book 18, Stacy's Mistake. So ominous. All right, let's jump into our one sentence summaries. Um, mine is Stacy invites the BSC to NYC to provide childcare for a grassroots homelessness initiative, plus lots of adolescent sniping. Mm-hmm. And. My one sentence summary is in Stacy's mistake, it is once again proven that the BSC should never leave Stony Brook. <laughs> Very descriptive. Yeah. <laughs> Mine is the BSC gets called to NYC to help some residents of a single Upper West Side apartment building solve the city's homelessness crisis. Accurate. <laughs> yeah. What a weird catalyst for <laughs> the girls to visit the city for the first time. <laughs> We'll get into it. (laughs) Wait, you guys, we should probably tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. I'm Annie Chicala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. And I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. If you want to learn more about each of us and how we know each other, you can check out our prologue episode. Also, please rate and review us. It really helps other people find the podcast. If you have any questions or commentary or thoughts of anything BSC related, you can drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. Okay, so before we get into Stacy's mistake, thought we would do a BSC Big Five. Ooh, yay. Haven't yeah, done one in a little bit. So this one comes from Michael. Let's see what he has to say. Okay, so his relationship to school when he was in middle school. He said, doing well academically. I love that part. I got straight A's, but socially, middle school was one of the roughest time periods of my life. Thank God for the BSC to help me get through it. I was more of a teacher's pet than anything else. And then fast forward to Michael now. He says, I've earned multiple degrees and then even took post-grad classes just because. And now I'm an elementary school counselor and teaching at a university on the side. I guess you could say love for school never left me. Okay, so not a Claudia. (laughs) No, not a Claudia. And then we have, let's see, he was always a leader. He insisted on it. We would put on plays. I was director and the star. (laughs) Root project, my ideas or else. Okay. (laughs) I'm assuming that's in middle school. Yes, that's in middle school. And then (laughs) today he's still a leader, but the skills are more refined now. Um, he practices servant leadership instead of dictatorial leadership now. Winky face, <laughs> ha, ha, ha. I don't know. I'm a fan of a benevolent dictator. <laughs> Fashion then, he always cared, but probably wasn't succeeding or doing it the quote unquote right way. Today, oh, he wrote a lot here. Okay. okay. I like to appear put together and coordinated, but casual. I lean into bright colors and lighthearted prints. At my job, I'm known for my fun shirts. I like to look like I tried, but not too hard. Comfort is definitely a must. In the summer, I'm almost always wearing a bandana, a fun t-shirt. I'm getting, I'm sensing a theme here, guys. Comfortable shorts and gym shoes so I can take off to the woods at any moment's notice. The fall and winter are fun for jackets, jackets, jackets. 
So many different jackets and scarves. I do love fun clothes. Okay, so the important thing about this is that Michael then sent us a follow-up email where he said, as I looked over my responses, I'm horrified to see that I used the word fun four times to describe my fashion and style choices. Puts a big L on my forehead with my left thumb and forefinger. Incredible. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I like that. Um, I like that uh, self-awareness. That that leads me to a little bit of, that's almost a Christy Thomas apology there, like mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, but yeah, but I like a fun shirt. I like some fun Except prints. that I doubt Christy Thomas would ever describe her own fashion sense as fun. <laughs> no, 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 that's true. Okay, well, period, not applicable. Right. Not applicable, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, uh, but he was a very much a late bloomer. His voice changed in the 10th grade and he was shorter than everyone else, including girls until the eighth grade. And still doesn't have his period. Uh, <laughs> Um, his romantic history. Okay, in middle school, non-existent, quote unquote, went out with a girl a couple times in sixth grade, but it didn't last long and it wasn't anything serious. Cut to today, not a lot has changed here either, but I'm not too upset about it. Less than a handful of serious relationships, none of which lasted longer than a couple months. I'm always too busy with my own life to reasonably and fairly make commitment to anyone else. Okay. It's very mature. Yeah. Um, hobbies back then. Babysitting, performing in the theater, singing, dancing, acting, reading, writing stories, art projects. Michael today, directing children's theater, yoga, hiking, reading, writing, traveling, creating art. Great. And then in his follow-up email, he also wanted us to know that he's a vegetarian who occasionally cheats and a plant dad. He has a lot, over 20 plants that he really enjoys taking care of. Mm. I'm getting a lot of Don. I'm getting a lot of Don too. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. The independence the fun fun fashion choices it's like fun but it's not wild right but but also i want to be ready to take off to the woods at any moment right yeah yeah i like how emily said i not don (laughs) no i i meant michael in that (laughs) (laughs) yes me (laughs) michael and don and emily yeah no i think and the the vegetarian and the plant dad all all of that leans pretty don to me Mm -hmm. And the and the kind of romantic independence maturity, like not like this is where I am and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't sound woefully signal single, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I think there's also a strong kind of Mal Jesse in the mix too. Mm-hmm. Say more. The like performing, reading, writing stories. It's kind of like like the artsy thing is there, but I think it's less in the Claudia sense than mm-hmm. it is in the sort of mal jesse vein mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i see that for sure so okay so the breakdown christy i think there's some christy because there's the there's the leader stuff and then that kind of change over time and i guess wasn't doing fashion right quote unquote but did care about it that's not very christy mm-hmm. yeah but late bloomer also is christy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah okay yeah. yeah, I feel like the group project, my ideas are else, and late bloom is strong, Christy, but not much in the other realms. <laughs> I have some things to say about that later, but <laughs> okay. And then I'm not really seeing much Stacy or Claude. No. We could do a, a little Claude for the the lighthearted prince, mm. um, but maybe like a 5%. Mm-hmm. 
What do you think a lighthearted print is? I don't know, like something whimsical. Yeah, like some cats playing tennis. <laughs> I I would like everyone to note that Esme just looked around the closet from which she records and said, "Some cats playing tennis, perhaps." Well, you know what I, was, I was looking for my husband's boxer shorts, which aren't in here because I have to move them to have space for the podcast. So, are you saying your husband's boxer shorts have cats playing with? Like, <laughs> no. They they don't, but they could. But they do have other like they have like milk and cookies on them. Or, hmm. but I was also thinking like I have this mod cloth dress here that has like a park print. Mm. You know, it's like see, you know, mm-hmm. so mod cloth you could sponsor us. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a little Claudia, right? A fun print, a lighthearted print. I, I agree. Okay. Well, it also like Stacy loves school. That's true. Who else? Um, I mean, Mallory also does really well in school too. That's right? true. Yeah. I mean, which of the well which of the girls would be sort of teachers' pet ish? I feel like we haven't gotten much of that from any of them yet. Mm. No, no, because not Marianne. She does well, but she would want she wants to fade in the background. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if anybody, maybe Stacy. Maybe Stacey. I was thinking Stacy. Yeah. Because yeah. I feel like she likes that. You know, it's like a there's a version of teachers' pet that's not not like boy craziness <laughs> right yeah so then are we thinking he has more stacy than claudia i think maybe a bit yeah i think so okay and then any marianne well late bloomer i guess but that's kind of yeah but that's yeah. sort of in christy too and marianne's late bloomerness kind of fades out really quickly and she transitions to the right the like opposite of how michael describes right. his romantic history right that's true mm-hmm. So are are we thinking lowest Marianne? Yeah. Okay. Any Marianne or zero? <laughs> We're thinking really hard. It's an important question, everyone. We have to really give it some deep, deep thought. I mean, zero is like, I don't know. You have to have like a little bit. I feel like everyone has a little bit of one of the BSC in them. I think we've given other people zero. I can't recall. I think we gave Shay zero, Claudia. Mm. Okay. We'll go with, let's go with zero then. Zero Marianne. How Dawn is our strongest one, right? Yeah. So how what Dawn do we think? Emily as as the Dawn. Yeah, you get to decide him. He wants to be ready at a moment's notice. Like 80? Yeah, I think that sounds right. 80 Dawn, 65 Mal Jesse. Yeah. And then like 50 Christy. I was thinking think? 50. How about 48? <laughs> okay. And then uh like 10 Stacy 5 Claudia or a little more Stacy than that. Maybe 12. 15. <laughs> I'm going to say 13. Great. Okay. <laughs> All right. There you go, Michael. 80 Dawn, 65 Mal Jesse, which will separate out more soon, I hope. 48 Christy, 13 Stacy, 5 Claudia, no Marianne. Thanks for writing in. Hope you feel better about your life now, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> now that you know this. Okay, so let's get into Stacy's mistake. I think it's interesting that we all lived in New York and Emily still lives there. So, but we did not live there during the 80s. Mm-mm. Um, Esme, what years did you live in New York City? In New York City proper, I lived there from 2004 to 2006. Okay. Not very long because I was on Long Island a bunch of the time. All right. But when years did you live in Long Island? 2001 to 2004. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I moved here in 2011 and I still live here. Then I lived there from 2002 to... God, 2017. <laughs> Freaking long time. 
Um, so yeah, I, I do feel like I lived there longer because my husband grew up in the Bronx, and so he lived in New York City from 1976 to 1993, and then again a bunch of times after that. Hmm. Why isn't he a guest on this? I know. Lots of was, I feel like that was kind of a missed opportunity there. Gary, are you there? <laughs> Get in the closet. <laughs> Get in the closet. So, okay. 1988 New York City. Can can we set the scene? Sure. There was lots of crime. <laughs> yeah, this is still like the seedy, the seedy New York City, right? Yeah, it was in the middle of the crack epi- epidemic. And there was lots of graffiti and lots and lots of crime and lots of prostitution mm-hmm. and a lot of problems and corrupt bad policing also. Mm-hmm. which I don't think has necessarily gone away, but was particularly bad in the 80s. Yeah. It's also an era of massive gentrification and displacement of poor people and uh, the hollowing out of the social welfare state and <laughs> a bunch of other things that are explicit top-down problems, although I think you could successfully argue that all of those things are <laughs> top-down mm-hmm issues or sort of issues generated by poor governance or at least exacerbated by poor governance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, the way the, that, that stereotype of the eighties as dangerous is like alive and well in how the girls sort of experience the city. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we mentioned in our summaries, right. Like the catalyst for them going to the city is that Stacy's parents, there's a homeless woman a visibly unhoused woman that lives on Stacy's street, whose name is Judy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stacy's parents want to do something about the problem of Judy <laughs> or for well, Judy. I they, yeah, I think they say yeah. specifically to help Judy. Yeah. I don't think they say like Judy's a problem. The problem of Judy. Yeah. Well, yeah, but there's, I mean, that line is so delicate right like Mm -hmm. what what kind of problem does duty represent to them is it like on behalf of duty's quality of life or is it like that we have to see judy that's the problem and it's probably a little bit of both but they're casting it to their kids as like well judy needs our help so we're going to do something about it and they like organize Mm -hmm. this community meeting and then there's a bunch of families in the building whose parents all want to attend this meeting and stacy has to turn down a bunch of babysitting jobs so she says i have an idea it's my turn for a great idea Mm -hmm. (laughs) i'm gonna invite the babysitters club to new york city and we will babysit the kids so the grown-ups can fix homelessness <laughs> yeah yep that's pretty accurate um yeah, yeah i think it's interesting because uh you know you call it a stereotype of the the crime and the lack of safety of new york in the 80s and i think like yes it's a stereotype and it has a bunch of truth to it right um and i think in terms of the way information trickles down about the world to 13 year olds in terms of like what they would be seeing on the nightly news and what they would be reading in the newspaper. I think the information that they had access to was not about the failure of the social safety net and all of the, right. Like what they would see is the crime headlines and, um, you know, the murder statistics and all of those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. So I, I don't, even though we we could say a lot about Dawn's, complete terror um on this trip it 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 made sense to me that that's what a 13 year old would know about new york in 1988 
Yeah, I think also what's really interesting about this is that it's not an incorrect portrayal of like what a bunch of like upper middle class like families would have done, especially given the background context of sort of the Reagan era of like how Reagan treated homelessness and like, right, this book came out, what month did you say? November. Oh, yeah, you're still you're finally alive, Emily. This is Emily's one month old when this book comes out. I was born. Yay. (laughs) But like the that year, the sort of like police raid and eviction of the, um, you know, underhoused at Tompkins Square Park was that happened in August. And that was like reported on as this sort of like violent action on behalf of the folks occupying that space. But we now know, right, that it was like police instigated violence. Um, And this is around the time when, you know, Ed Koch's solution to homelessness is let's close parks at night so homeless people can't sleep there, right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time as you have Reagan sort of saying homelessness is a problem the church can deal with. And at the Mm -hmm. same time as he's like drastically reducing funding to the Department of Housing and Urban Development. I saw a statistic that said that federal spending on subsidized housing, so not even the the explicit branch of the federal government that's meant to to um, deal with managing kind of displaced and homeless people, uh, but just specifically federal spending on subsidized housing decreased from twenty six billion to eight billion throughout through the course of Reagan's presidency. Wow. Yeah. Um, That's a huge drop in eight years. Huge drop. Yeah. And then you have like this brief stint that comes right after this book where David Dinkins was elected mayor for only three years. And he was when he was Manhattan borough president, like homelessness was kind of his issue. And he was authored this report in 87 that was like a shelter. The, The title of it was called A Shelter is Not a Home. And his whole thing was like, we can't combat displaced people and homelessness by just building more shelters. Like we need to have transitional programs that get people into housing that's affordable. And this is happening mm-hmm. also around the time when Reagan is like completely ignoring the AIDS crisis, which affected huge swaths of populations in New York city. And so like the, that, uh, you know, some well-to-do upper middle-class folks would be like, all right, I guess we're going to have to organize with our local church to run a soup kitchen is not surprising. Mm-hmm. Right. That like there are, there, there's this that's was the entire backdrop of kind of like the 1990 mayoral election. And then, you know, people didn't like David Dinkins sort of solutions and his kind of attempt at expanding the social welfare state. And then you have, you know, like Giuliani come in um, in 1993, who's responsible for all kinds of horrible shit. And then this like culminates kind of in 1996 with like this bullshit you know, democratic welfare reform bill that was just like putting a bandaid on a fucking right. broken bone. Like, so yeah. I, th- that, that the families reacted or were, were engaging in this kind of action mm-hmm. is not surprising, but it is, it is again, like a very moderate kind of um, representation of a problem that it had. I mean, there's a, such a strong history of activism around this stuff in New York city as well. Right. The Tompkins mm-hmm. square riots were, Um, a police response to an organized kind of anarchist movement that was like, we have a right to, to be here to take up space. And the the city ultimately closed Tompkins square park 
1991 and 1992 and completely renovated it so that you can't literally can't squat there. I mean, you guys have been there now. It used to be this big, huge open space that people built encampments. And then they built all these like paths and fences and mm-hmm. gardens so that it's unsquattable. <laughs> like they, mm-hmm. the, so it's done under the auspices of like green space and city right. improvement. And the effect is to eject homeless people from yeah. occupying that space. And so, um, you know, and then like New York City in the 60s and 70s also is a, the huge, the center of the kind of welfare rights movement, which like we don't really think about as the, uh, or is not sort of a, a mainstream social movement that we get taught about or that we hear much about. But it's like this is the the kind of activist backdrop against which, um, you know, you have a conservative regime emptying out these these safety nets and then you have these like moderate democratic you know, folks in their Upper West Side apartment, they're like, what are, What can we do? Like, let's build a soup mm-hmm. kitchen. And it's like, all right, well, this is actually a really much more complicated issue than that. But I, mm-hmm. but it does make sense that that's kind of how they respond, given the political backdrop against which this they're having this conversation. Oh, my gosh. You just said so much information. So I have like Sorry. several. <laughs> I know. Several I was like, whoa. To respond to. <laughs> One, I think it's really interesting, right? This is November 88. And so it's the end of Reagan's regime because he has met his term limit, but the country has decided, yeah, we want four more years of this and has just elected his vice president, Bush Sr., as president. So it's not, you know, with the failings of all of the kind of social service parts of the state, the country is still saying, yeah, give us more of this. So the belief in, you know, trickle down is still happening. Um, And then the AIDS crisis also really struck me in terms of there's I found a couple of photo essays of New York in the 80s that will we can put links to um, that really emphasized this kind of triple um, problem of crack cocaine coming on the scene, leading to prostitution where people were you know, so addicted to the drug, they're willing to sell their body for, I saw some prices listed in some of these news reports as like 50 cents to be able to get a little bit more of the drug. And then of course, that's going to balloon the AIDS crisis, right? Because people are not able to, you know, they're, they're for intravenous drugs, they're sharing needles and they're engaging in sex acts in order to be able to, and with none of that, no uh, coordinated federal policy to address that well, um, New York is going to become more of a hotbed just by virtue of having a higher population being closer together and everything else. So, yeah, it's very sad. So soup kitchen will um, solve everything. We'll fix it. <laughs> yeah. I, I was curious about, you know, but Stacy, I think Stacy describes Judy very nonjudgmentally. I think um, I was sort of pleased with you know, uh, listeners may notice that Emily's generally using the word unhoused. And so this is similar to what we've talked about before about how we don't call Stacy a diabetic anymore. We call her a person with diabetes. And so usually you don't want to say a homeless person. You want to say somebody experiencing homelessness or uh, someone who is unhoused nowadays. But other than that kind of older language around it, I think, um, it certainly seems like she's describing somebody who either does not have enough mental health services or is is indeed affected by the drug epidemic happening in New York at the time, right? So Judy has this unpredictable behavior, and sometimes she's very angry and yelling, and sometimes she's more cheerful. Um, but Stacy doesn't have 
and perhaps reflective of the fact that we know that Stacy's generally a little bit less judgmental than, say, Marianne. She's just sort of describing, like, this is what's happening and we worry mm-hmm. about her. And so she's like... Stacy does was- call her a walking dump. Just oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, she's sort of... Yeah, but it's an interesting context for that too, mm-hmm. right? She says that as a reflection of like, of describing kind of what homelessness looks like and why it's a problem, right? That Judy mm-hmm. has attachments to all these like random objects that people who have homes would never dream of being attached to. And so I think that's Stacey's kind of reflection of like how mm-hmm. to characterize what what some of the like harms of it are maybe. And it's like a kind of 13-year-old maybe misplaced uh, mm-hmm. assess, assessment of like what's bad about this but like um and it's not like judy is not morally responsible for this like weird mm-hmm. attachment to garbage but like the fact that she's attached to stuff that stacy looks at as garbage is some is part of the way that stacy's trying to make sense of like what's bad about being homeless or something or if that makes sense yeah. i don't know if bad's like the right word to characterize it but like why yeah. it's a problem mm-hmm. yeah i thought so too um, I also thought it was really smart of Anna Martin to not that this is surprising to me because she's a storyteller, but I thought it was really smart to have a specific Judy and to not talk about like statistics related to people experiencing homelessness in New York or to say like there are a lot of homeless people around. But the fact that Stacy had a specific, you know, whatever relationship a 13 year old can have with the local person mm-hmm. experiencing homelessness on their block, but that, you know, it was um, personified in this particular person. We know people are more likely to pay attention when mm-hmm. they know know somebody and that there's a specific person that they're focused on. So I thought that that was a nice entree for, you know, the 10 and 11 year olds who would be reading this book. Yeah. And I do think that the way she kind of checks Don's like fear of homeless people is important too, right? That I mean, Stacy's like, you have to be cautious. Don't open your wallet in the middle of the street, not because the homeless panhandler is going to steal it from you, but because someone else might, right? Like, mm-hmm. and and like homeless people are not something. People who are homeless are not some like something you have to be scared of. Right. And, and so, like, yeah, but Don's fear will get there. But well, do you want to get there now? No, nah, it just didn't really ring rang strangely to me. I didn't buy that she would be walking around like afraid that someone was going to murder her at any second. Well, I think it's why why did Anna Martin choose Dawn? That's as, what I was as wondering. As the person to be scared. Because I mean, the rest of them are from Stony Brook, you know? Right. So, you know, they've barely left town. So it's like, why, why Dawn with like her long white blonde hair or like pale blue eyes you know well I yeah I wondered about that too I think Marianne is is very clearly Anna Martin in this book right even more so than in other books like you know when she says like if it's possible to have a crush on a city that's Marianne I think that that's how Anna Martin grew up in suburban Princeton and she mm-hmm. as soon as she could move to New York she did and she loves New York City and so in some ways, it would seem that Marianne would be the more natural choice of a person to be afraid just because of her general timidness, but her mm-hmm. love of the city overtakes that. I don't, you know, I think it was smart to have one of them be scared because of what was going on in the national media about the crisis of New York City at that moment. It would have been weird if they were just like, Broadway shows and fun and Hard Rock Cafe, you know, mm-hmm. it, like it, it was a notorious place at that time. Um, and so I feel like she might have just flipped a coin or like <laughs> rolled yeah. rolled the dice and, and chose Dawn. 
Yeah. I mean, I think even like my dad, who's a fancies himself a good liberal hippie, when I in 2011 was like, I'm moving to New York, he was like, Are you sure you want to do that? And I was like, You've in my entire life, you've raised me to be a feminist. And now I want to move to a city. And you're like, mm, I went there once in the 70s. I don't know if you should do that. <laughs> yeah. Like he immediately walked it back, but that was like the knee jerk reaction. Right. Totally. <laughs> right. Which is, you know, which is fair. Which is a lot of people's experience of it. So I think Dawn does make sense because if you think about it that way, she would have seen more of the, you know, less of the local, slightly more nuanced news and more of when New York hits the national news right before she got to Stony Brook, which was more sensational. I mean, mm-hmm. I, pro- you know, I think we were growing up. I might have if you asked me at 12 or 13, what's it like in New York? I probably would have thought that it was quite dangerous. Not that I didn't also like it, partly because of this book. but. um Mm-hmm. I think that that was, you know, the farther you get from it, the more notorious it gets. So maybe that mm-hmm. sort of makes sense. I mean, I also think it's obvious Anna Martin lived in Manhattan because I feel yeah. like the way she described the people and the experiences, I got the feeling that those were her like personal experiences too, because mm-hmm. they seem very like specific. Mm-hmm. Like just like even like talking about the people who lived in Stacy's building. Mm-hmm. And like the different kinds of families, like he chose like, you know, an arty family, <laughs> like the rich family, you know, it was kind of like she was showing like, you know, young kids what the diversity of New York and what it was, what it was mm-hmm. like in this way that I didn't, you know, like, I think a lot of my impressions of New York actually came from the Babysitter's Club. Yeah. And it was like, oh, Stacy is from there. Like I knew like Bloomingdale's and like, you know, Serendipity. These this is where these books are where I heard all, of all those things for the first time. So yeah, totally. and I think like Anna Martin did a, a like a really good job at putting in more nuanced parts of New York into it rather than just Central Park and, you know, the museums and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. While not ignoring those things. Yeah. Yeah. Esme, your point about the city's notoriety increasing with distance also just makes that ring really true for me in our in the current moment, like in the moment of the pandemic, right? I mm-hmm. often hear from folks I haven't seen in a long time who've never lived here in the last few months, like, how is it scary there? Because everything that that gets out is bad. And so right. to be mm-hmm. like... And all those, you know, stupid essays are about New York being dead because, like, Manhattan, yeah. you know, offices mm-hmm. are closed. It's just, like, such bullshit if you live anywhere other than Midtown. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, that I, I hadn't thought about it in that way, but I think in that sense it makes sense, like, to have one of them mm-hmm. be sort of filled with these paralyzing right. fears about what could happen to them there. Yeah. Well, and I was also wondering if some of it was probably also due to Dawn's imagine. You know, we talked a lot in um, Ghost at Dawn's House about how Dawn likes to be scared and she reads a lot of scary stories. And so she has an appetite for those things um, for fun as well. But we know that she can kind of throw herself in and get really spooked and, and concerned about stuff. And so I wonder if then those kinds of news reports would also affect her Mm-hmm. more whereas like mm-hmm. someone like christy who's sort of more naturally skeptic st- skeptical is just not gonna take it in as much yeah they wrote too much of the stony brook crime blotter right don, don got spooked <laughs> yeah <laughs> crime watch yeah yeah it's not all wait what's the one that claudia made up to don that don believed 
Oh, the something about flying Twinkies. It's not all Twinkies and yeah. unicorns or whatever in New York City. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. It's not uh, giant butterflies demanding Twinkies. Sorry. Wow, you found that quick. Yeah, how did you do that? Have my notebook. Oh, man. Oh, God. Are we going to hear about the notebook again? It was one of my favorite lines from uh, book Uh, 15. So I just flipped back a few pages. I structure it the same way. I write my favorite lines in the same place, my tallies in the same place. So. I mean, this just, it's like, this is why Esme was really good at school. I mean, not only is she really smart, but she's also extremely organized. And she takes pleasure in being organized. Whereas, look at me. So I got I got a letter from the EDD about some, like, I have to pay some due for my business. So I, I like, ignored this Employment for a Employment Development Department of yeah. Cal- the state of California. And then... I couldn't find my notebook, so I wrote my notes on the back. <laughs> so that's how I that's how I play. Yeah. I write mine inside the book. <laughs> that's I wrote basically wrote the entirety of my dissertation in the jackets of all the books that I read for it, and I like had to go back and find my notes when I was in crunch time near the end, and I was like, "Well, this is a really inefficient way to have written most of my dissertation. I don't recommend it." <laughs> yeah, don't. I'm not going to apologize for it. Christy yeah. with a healthy dose of Marianne. But it could be fun someday for someone to find all these books. Oh, wait. No, and totally. read all wait, the weird shit in them. Can I guys show you? We could do giveaways to our listeners if you want Emily's annotated <laughs> Stacy's mistake. Yeah. You, you hit us up. Let us can know. Can I guys show you the inside of my, my copy of Stacy's mistake? So first, yeah. um, I, I wrote my name, but like only like 80% of it. Okay. Well, it says like Anne Itchik- Itchika. What? What? <laughs> you got bored? I got bored. Then I, I made this little cartoon guy. Oh, yeah. that's fun. Yeah. And then the, the coolest part is I used some... Oh, my God. <laughs> I wrote my name in invisible ink, and then I scribbled over it. <laughs> you wrote your full name right. that, that my time. Full yeah, name, yeah. You didn't give up yeah. partway through on that one. Yeah. Okay. You might have to Instagram anyway, story those those I treasures, man. Yeah. Not very exciting, but do we want to say more about New York City? Should we jump into psych stuff? Yeah, let's talk about all these issues these friends are having. Yeah, <laughs> I know. There's some drama. It so. like went from zero to a hundred, and, and I then think back Claudia to zero really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Claudia started it. Yeah. So yeah. you guys are mostly talking about the the sniping, as Stacy calls it, between yes. Lane and Claudia. Yeah. yeah. So um, what did you guys think about it before I tell you what the literature says? Did you have any specific questions about it or what, what stuck out to you? I mean, the foundation is pretty obvious. They feel, Claudia feels threatened, mm-hmm. jealous um, of, of Lane. Mm-hmm. But the way she just like lashes out at her like immediately from the get-go is a little mm-hmm. bit odd to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. I don't remember things being that explicit. I feel like when I was 13, jealousies would have been more, a little less surface interaction and would have been mm-hmm. a little bit more kind of like insidious and like slow burning, not mm-hmm. like an immediate eruption into confrontation. Yeah, that makes sense. I think there's a lot of variation. But bottom line, there's there's a big literature on friendship jealousy 
in late childhood, early adolescence. So I found a bunch of studies specifically on this age period, ranging from 10 to 14 to 11 to 13, and the ways in which people experience, um, kids experience jealousy and close friendships. Um, and it's related to a bunch of different constructs. So it was interesting to me. I I was interested in exactly what you guys said, that there was this big jump in in jealousy, and then they kind of let it go and got over it, um, which actually turns out is kind of in line with the literature for kids who are more well-adjusted about their friendships. So mm. the early literature on this thought it had a lot to do with self-esteem. So basically, kids with higher self-concept or self-worth would have less friendship jealousy, even though friendship jealousy is relatively common at this age. Um, if I'm hanging out with Anne all the time, and then Anne starts hanging out with you, Emily. If I feel more confident about myself, I'm going to worry about that less. That's your dream. <laughs> I know. My dream is literally that Anne and Emily hang out. They keep living in the same place and only seeing each other when I'm there. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, But it turns out that's not actually very accurate. Um, self-esteem has a very small relationship. The correlation is low. Um, and so more recent literature has been trying to figure out, well, what does explain it? Why are some kids more prone to this than others? Um, and there's a bunch of different variables that might seem relevant. I have There's this crazy model that I kind of want to show you guys, but if I share the screen, it'll be bad, right? So I'll show you later. Um, I'll link to this article. But basically, one thing that's really important is flexibility. And so if you're a kid who is really rigid, like um, they measure, they have one measure of friendship flexibility that's like, if my best friend can't come to my birthday party, I will still have fun with the other kids there. And if mm. you say low on that, um, that's problematic, right? If you have like a vision of, I need to be with this particular person, or I need to go to this particular event on this particular day, and you're not open to alternatives, you're going to be set up for more friendship jealousy and more disappointment, which makes sense, right? If you're sort of stuck in your lane. Yeah. And the other thing that's really important is how you manage those jealous emotions. So everybody feels jealousy sometimes. Do you assume that that is related to a problem with your friend? And thus, do you do things like start to what they call engage in surveillance behavior? Like, do you start to like, um, and nowadays it would be texting, but then it would be like calling, like, what are you doing? Where are you? Like, who are you spending time with today? Um, and do you initiate specific conflict with the friend about it? And those things lead to actually feeling more jealous and more problems with the relationship and more disappointment and loneliness and even all the way to depressive symptoms. Then if you're a person that might actually address it directly, like, oh, I was I really wanted to hang out with you on Saturday. I was disappointed that you were hanging out with Anne instead. Emily, what happened? You know, can can we make plans next weekend? Then that's going to reduce those jealous emotions and conflicts. So I actually think that the strength that Lane and Claudia had in this situation is that neither of them attacked Stacy. Mm. They attacked each other about it. So they were feeling jealous and they were feeling worried about their relationship with Stacy, but they didn't get mad at Stacy. Like Claudia didn't attack Stacy for inviting Lane or vice versa, and they both made like these overtures to Stacy, Lane inviting all of the BSC to come with them to to see Starlight Express and Claudia being willing to kind of start over with Lane and 
build the relationship with Lane because that was something that Stacy wanted, mm-hmm. um, I think shows both their flexibility and that they have like enough baseline self-worth that they could sort of roll with this and, and try harder. Whereas I think a lot of girls in that situation could have gotten mad at Stacy mm-hmm. and um, sort of added additional tension to the relationship through that, if that makes sense. The flexibility dimension rings so intuitively true to me. I, I'm mm-hmm. thinking of my group of girlfriends from college and how there we have had zero like issues of friendship jealousy in the over a decade mm-hmm. that we've all been friends, and it's uh, because every single one of us individually is wildly flexible. Like <laughs> it's like do whatever, whenever it doesn't matter. <laughs> Don't care who's there. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think it also it, it's relevant to the fact that you know, well, of course, some of you are closer to some some others of you than others, right? Um, it's not that everyone is equally qu- close in this yeah. web of friendship, but you're all fairly happy to hang out with whoever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if one person isn't there, one person isn't available, it's like, oh, fine, I'll go to the party with this person. Like, yeah. no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing that, uh, the other study I found that was really interesting was about um, the perception of controllability of social characteristics. So, like, do you believe that social characteristics and outcomes are fixed and uncontrollable? Um, so, like, if your friend decides to go to the party with another friend, that means that you are not good friends anymore because she chose you. So that behavior indicates something meaningful and you're not willing to see it otherwise. You're more likely to respond to friendship jealousy with what they call asocial or antisocial responses. So either ignoring it and retreating or picking a fight. Whereas if you believe that you know, things have a lot of different causes, might happen for a lot of reasons. You have some like efficacy in like the social outcome depends on what I do and how I interact with my friend and with this person, then you're going to be less likely to experience severe friendship jealousy and more likely to, when you experience it, have a pro-social response like Lane did mm-hmm. of like, hey, I think we got off on the wrong foot. Let me try again, as opposed to let me burn it all down. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So what if you just don't like Emily has a lot of friends, right? Mm-hmm. And I have fewer friends. Mm-hmm. Does that make a difference in how you feel? Like, you know? Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with your um affiliativeness is a personality characteristic of like how much you need to be around other people and have closeness mm-hmm. with other people. So we we joked before on the podcast, it wasn't a joke, it was true that Emily was disappointed that she only made two new friends during the <laughs> pandemic and Anne was shocked and said she made two new friends like in the last decade. Um, <laughs> so I would say without doing a formal measure that Emily is significantly higher on need for affiliation than you are. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. And you're just more of an introverted person and you're, uh, you know, you're kind of a quality over quantity person and you're also perfectly happy to be alone a large percentage of the time. This is right? true. So, and I think you that flexibility thing, I think, is the, the thread that is true between you and Emily. Mm-hmm. Like, I think if someone is busy, you know, if you, I, I think probably you don't invite people to do a lot of things. I think probably you get invited places is my guess. Um, but if But if you do invite somebody someplace and they're busy, you're not going to be like, oh, they don't want to see me. You know, you're just right. like, oh, 
okay, great. I get to be home by myself again. Like right. it doesn't, yeah. doesn't have a big negative impact on you. And you're right. I don't, I don't really make plans. Right. You accept plans. <laughs> I, I accept plans. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I'm pretty much the opposite. So, right. um, but well, yeah, somewhere I in the middle. That, yeah. That flexibility is the, is yeah. the thing that matters the most. That's so interesting. Yeah. So again, I thought, you know, this is usually my, my bottom line is I think Anna Martin did a pretty good job. And I think she <laughs> did here. I think it was, um, it was realistic. They're at the right age where, you know, friendships are the most important thing. And so Claudia's jealousy. And I think, you know, we have some other evidence that Claudia is a little immature about friendships, right? So she hadn't had mm-hmm. a best friend prior to Stacy. She didn't really feel like she fit in with Christy and Marianne because she was more mature. So the loss of Stacy was really big for her. We see her stumbling and getting confused with Ashley and Claudia and the new girl. And so I think it makes sense that Claudia would start this because Claudia has the most to lose. You know, Stacey's back in New York with Lane. Also, Claudia's feelings especially bad. It was so bad in this book. Wait, it was it was actually appreciably different, you think? <laughs> like every other word bad. was spelled wrong on her postcards. I was like, what the hell? I'm glad you noticed that also, Emily. Because <laughs> I was like, come on, can you stop making Claudia just like... I feel like she's a worse speller in eighth grade than she was in seventh grade. <laughs> Is that developmentally appropriate, as we? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I can't say anything about it. Although I did have one other thing to say about Lane and Claudia that while we're relating it back to ourselves that I found to be true, which was on um, page 125 when they're getting along and they go to see Starlight Express and they've gone out to dinner, then um, we were tired. So we just talked and talked all the way home. Claudia and Lane began teasing me. And then Claudia and Lane, whose main thing in common is Stacy, just kind of start ripping her up with stories from her youth and stories, silly stories from Stony Brook. And it's weird. I don't know why um, it reminded me of something when my- Are you crying? Yeah. <laughs> See? I, my Asian best friend and my other friend in New York bond over making fun of me. It just, I felt for Stacy in that moment. Hmm, interesting. I'm not really seeing that connection. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that time when, as we cried on the podcast? Oh my yeah. God, you guys are such eye holes. <laughs> Incredible. While I'm defending myself, the, the only other psychology thing I noticed um, that didn't really ring true for me is when they are setting out on their babysitting adventure. Um, so, of course, Stacy, um, it makes sense for Stacy to take charge because she knows all the kids and she knows New York City. Um, and she says something, um, you know, she feels a little funny because Christy was usually in charge. And then um, my friends followed the orders, but I could tell that Christy didn't like doing it. Um, I, as someone that is often put in charge of things, that didn't really ring true to me because I think it's um, being in a situation where you're not going to be in charge is often I find a relief. Um, and I don't know, I don't know that Christy would assume that she would be in charge with a bunch of kids she doesn't know in a city she doesn't know. So I, I that could have just been Stacy editorializing, but that didn't feel right to me. Not just because I'm being a Christy apologist, but I, it also just seemed a little no, no, because extreme. you were personally offended. 
by the yeah. observation. Yeah. Yeah. But also, I no, but really though, what did you guys, not, not just to tease me, but what did you guys think about that? I thought that was a little funny. Like, I didn't know why she would be upset in that moment. Yeah. I mean, I'm not as much of a Christy as you are, but I do, I do often get put in charge of things because I'm better at it than a lot of other people, but I would mm-hmm. prefer not to if I don't right. need to. Yeah. Right. And, and if somebody else does it and does it effectively, I'm like, great. Right. Please. And Stacy's really competent. Mm-hmm. So I would, you know, being on my babysitting vacation as Christy was there, I would be thrilled to just follow along and have Stacy lead the way to the museum and lead the way through the park and stuff like that sounds lovely. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. And disagrees. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it just that that part rubbed as me the wrong way, you know? No. Well, because I also think that, um, well, it's it's a little bit of this, you know, following this thread of like, is Chrissy boss, Chrissy bossy or is she a good leader? That mm-hmm. that to me speaks to sort of the negative connotation of bossiness, sort of like Michael described himself in middle school. Right. <laughs> like my way over the highway um, leadership just for the sake of leading. Whereas actually, I, I don't think that's how Christie's portrayed a lot of the times. And I think she is like a very thoughtful leader and like wants to do the right thing by the BSC and is not doing it for the mm-hmm. like, quote unquote, glory. So mm-hmm. it wouldn't make sense for her to want to lead in that situation. She's a benevolent dictator. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Just benevolent. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't have to go with dictator. All right, Anne. There was a lot of pop culture stuff in this book, Annie. What it, what popped out for you? There was, but I do want to note that right before Emily and I start making fun of you, I mean, Lane and Claudia start making fun of Stacy on page 124. So it says, then Lane told us about a trip to Japan she'd been on. Claudia was fascinated. I knew you were going to say something about that. I was kind of like, okay. <laughs> like, I mean, I get it. Like, Claudia's Japanese. She's never been to Japan, I guess. So hearing a firsthand experience of being to Japan. But it, I feel like a lot of my Asian friends and I talk about, in particular, men and white men mm. who have a lot of knowledge about like maybe Japanese culture or like, you know, they're like really into anime and like all this other stuff. They tend to talk to Asian women with this like, look what I know Mm. type of attitude. And it's really offensive. Yeah. Yeah, So, you know, first we had the Mallory explaining soy sauce (laughs) to Claudia. And now we have Lane, you know, talking to Claudia about her own culture Okay, but are you really trying to put Lane in the same box as, like, a gross, like, Rivers Cuomo rice chaser man trying to explain anime to you? I don't think that's really fair. She was just talking about a trip she went on. Yeah, I just feel like Claudia gets, like, brushed aside a lot with with her with her Japanese-Americanness, you know? And I feel I was just like, oh, like, this is just another example of maybe Anna Martin just not mm-hmm. giving it enough attention. Um, that's fair um, and also lane like how rich is she she's well, like, right so that's what i was gonna say so like probably what she's telling claudia about her trip to japan is like on the one hand this like totally different experience that claudia would have in in like every sense right like Claudia's totally. gonna be thinking about i mean who knows like maybe she would visit family maybe she would do something else and lane's mm-hmm. like i spent all this money yet i can only imagine <laughs> that's like <laughs> that's what lane's talking about <laughs> right yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's why she was fascinated. 
Look at this yeah. rich white lady. What's it yeah. like to be rich? <laughs> um, but in terms of pop culture, I, you know, we had talked about touch on Starlight Express, the Andrew Lloyd Webber hit musical of the 80s that the babysitters and Lang get to go to for free in house seats and go get there in a limo. Yeah. Which, I mean, seems a little excessive to me, the limo part. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that Lane's family just uses a limo all the time to get places. Right. But this was really, I mean, I feel like we've had a return to like a healthy amount of shame around excessive wealth in some circles, at least. Um, whereas in the 80s, like wealth was cool. You know, this is when like Silver Spoons was on and like different mm-hmm. stories. There was lots of like, you know, rich white people taking in people in their TV shows. And I remember when we were in middle school, just like two years after this, the like big prize for selling the most magazines was a limo ride around Sacramento. Um, And like everybody wanted to get it. Whereas Mm -hmm. now I would be like, why, why would we want that? Like, but it was now, now do you think Lane's family just uses like Uber XL or do they have, do they still have one driver? And they mm. and the driver like drives a town car or something like that. I bet they still have a driver. Yeah, yeah. I have known people who had drivers. It's I've been in cars with them before, and it's like we've gone to a concert, and like they're like, oh, I was like, oh, like how are we getting home? And they're like, oh, they're just away for us. And I'm like, what? You're gonna make this person wait in a car for like three hours while we have fun, and then they're gonna drive us home? It's like very bizarre. So the thing I really want to touch on was the Hard Rock Cafe. Ooh, yeah. Because this was, I just remember reading this and being like, oh my God, they're going to the Hard Rock Cafe. Lucky. So lucky. And this yeah. was in, is this 1989 now? Eight, November 8th. But this is like relatively, like I think the Hard Rock in New York City opened in 1984. Mm -hmm. Um, so it wasn't, you know, like four years after opening, it was probably like in its prime popularity, especially with tourists, Mm -hmm. but like Emily, you probably don't have the same association with the Hard Rock Cafe t-shirt as Esme and I do, Mm -hmm. but let me tell you, (laughs) in elementary school in sixth grade, this is like the coolest shirt to have. Mm -hmm. And I remember only certain kids had them. And they were usually people who had more money mm-hmm. and had the ability to travel to different places. So it was kind of this really big status symbol. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I remember specifically Jeff Cole had one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Coolest boy in our class. Yeah. Did Michelle have one? <laughs> yeah, she did. Of course. <laughs> she had like five of them. <laughs> She's going to be so mad. <laughs> uh, you like a sweatshirt, a tank top, uh, <laughs> ringer tee. It's kidding. But they were um, just such a symbol of like, you've been to this place, you were able to travel, your family went there. And it was obviously before the internet, so you couldn't buy them online or anything. You like specifically had to go to mm-hmm. the restaurant to buy one in person. And so I did a little you know, research into the Hard Rock Cafe and there's like so much history to it, but specifically about the shirt um, 
So Hard Rock Cafe was open. The first location was in London. Um, and it was open in 1971. So a lot earlier than the one in New York. In fact, the second location, do you guys want to guess where it was? You'll never guess. It was it was in Jackson, Tennessee. What? Yeah. Because one of the co-founders, uh, that's where he was born and raised. Huh. So the co-founders' names were Isaac Tigret and Peter Morton. Um, and the inspiration for the Hard Rat Cafe came from the fact that they were in London together. And they both came from wealthy families. And they were in, in London. They're like, oh, like, I really wish we could get a cheeseburger. But it was really hard to find American food like that in London at the time. So they, you know, like rich kids do, they had this idea and they were able to do it because <laughs> they had the money. Um, so they opened Hard Rock Cafe and especially Isaac Tigret, um, he was a very spiritual person. Um, and I'll get into this a little bit later, but he had this whole idea of making a classless like restaurant. Mm. Or like anyone could go eat. Um, and they specifically got the location near Buckingham Palace to kind of make that point. Mm. You know, like a, a restaurant everyone, every class could go to. Do you think that's why the waitress is so nice to Christy when she orders fillet mignon? I mean, that's an iconic line. <laughs> I will never forget. I have not forgotten that line. <laughs> Since I read this book, and every time I see it on a on a menu, that's how I read it. <laughs> it's like that line, and also have have fun and be careful mm-hmm. with something yeah. we used to say to each other. I remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Oh my god. So yeah. So uh, Isaac Tigray and Peter Morden. Morden, his father was actually he of the family of Morden Steakhouse. Oh. Um, and also, side note, Peter Morden's son open the uh, matcha chain Chacha Matcha, which is just like, have you heard of that as me? They're in New York and LA, but there's like, it's like they're trying to build like the Starbucks of like matcha latte, essentially. Mm. Okay. Anyway, so it's like kind of this generation. (laughs) I know, right? Um, So the t-shirt came about, Isaac had this really weird affinity for the Chevrolet logo. So they hired this very famous graphic designer and illustrator named Alan Aldridge, who was very famous in the 60s and 70s for his work with musicians. He was kind of, if you look him up, it's very much that colorful, psychedelic style of illustration. And he worked with the Beatles and Elton John and The Who with a lot of their like um, artwork for their music. So he, Alan Aldridge, made the Hard Rock Cafe logo specifically to mimic the Chevrolet car logo because it was like a very Americana um, symbol, I guess. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the t-shirt came about because while in London, I guess they sponsored a local football team or soccer team. And, you know, their friends and families were like, oh, I really want a hard rock shirt. So the demand basically became where they had to start mass printing them. And it, it kind of took off from there. Um, but people have called it like probably one of the most like iconic graphic tees mm-hmm. of all time. 
um, just because it's so recognizable and there's like so many hard rock cafe locations around the world. Do either um, of you own one or had you? No. no. I had one. I went to the Hard Rock Cafe in London when I was 13. So my Girl Scout troop went to London. So I was I was struck by two things. I'm really glad you decided to zero in on Hard Rock, Annie, because I was struck by two things reading this part. One, the chapter where they go there and they describe what they see. Um, I really remember being 13 and being very impressed by the memorabilia and being very interested in like leaving our seat after we ordered and walking around and looking at memorabilia in other parts of the restaurant and having it be very exciting and then like buying a shirt from there when I went. But then I was also struck with like people reading this now, like the Hard Rock brand has, I think, has kind of fallen. Like it's, you know, it's viewed pretty cheesy now and sort of the problem with kind of mass expansion of brands and like if you go to a hard rock cafe someplace instead of going to like eat the local food or going to an independent restaurant that's kind of cheesy or lame you know I think there's some associations with that that really don't capture what it was like in the late 80s and early 90s like Mm. it was a it was a cool thing to do it was not a like lame you know, I think that stereotype now, if you went to New York and you went to Hard Rock Cafe, it would be like, oh, you don't want to leave. Cheesy tourist. You know, yeah, cheesy tourists. Like you're coming and you want to go to the same restaurants you can go to at home now that there is a Hard Rock Cafe in Sacramento, for instance. Yeah. Um, it's like how wasn't. Michael Scott yeah. goes to the Sabaro in Times Square. <laughs> the exactly. New York's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it has that feel now, but it did not at the time. It was legitimately kind of awe-striking. Awe I genuinely yeah. do not know if I've ever been to a Hard Rock Cafe. Is there one in Universal Studios? Probably. There's one in Sacramento at at the at the K Street Mall downtown. Have downtown we? Plaza. Have I ever been there? Maybe. I bet when it first opened, I bet we went like around Christmas time sometime. I genuinely don't know if I've ever been to one. Uh, there's one at the Universal Studios in Orlando. I've never been there. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, like so, I want to hear more about your experience at the Hard Rock Cafe. Like, do you remember what you ate? Um, I think I ate their famous cheeseburger (laughs) and fries. Um, Uh I remember waiting in line. I remember taking lots of pictures of like the different memorabilia. Like they had a ton of Beatles stuff, of course, because it was Mm -hmm. in London and Anne and I are both huge Beatles fans. Um, So I was really excited to see like, you know, George's guitar and like, parts of the Sergeant Pepper costumes and stuff like that. Um, and I do remember like being kind of nervous and them the, having a similar experience that they have with their super cool waitress Meadows in this <laughs> book that like everyone was really nice. Mm-hmm. And the idea that this, the, the slogans they have like save the planet being really relevant at the, you know, feeling really relevant at the time and feeling like things that other big restaurants weren't talking about, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so it just felt very of the moment and cool and interesting. And they work to make you feel like you, you know, I was like a young teenager from Sacramento and I like, I could be there. Like it Mm -hmm. didn't feel like it was an exclusive place where I shouldn't be there. I have a, music related question to ask you guys do you buy that when stacy's picking out tapes and she puts on some band my parents used to like called the doors that she wouldn't know who the doors were um 
I mean, possible. I think so. Maybe she, I don't think she probably knew. I don't know. It's 88, right? So the doors are only like 20 years old. That would be like somebody now not knowing who Britney Spears was. Or what's other stuff from like 2000? Or I don't, that seems I don't know. I just feel like, okay, so at the last job I worked at, I had some coworkers who were, you know, pretty like 15, 17 years younger than me. They were like 23, 24. And we, I, we had like a dry erase board in our little, in our area. And I would like make a list of all the things I didn't know. <laughs> like, or things I haven't seen. Like they were like, oh yeah, Star Wars. Is that like, what's, is that about like space? Yeah, but that's a lot older to them than this is to Stacy. They didn't know Beyonce was in Destiny's Child. They didn't know what Destiny's Child was. Okay, that is shocking to me. Like, they were blown away by the fact that she had this other group. And I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, so I that's why I'm kind of like, well, there's a good chance that maybe she just didn't know who the doors were. But just because I have seen, seen it firsthand. <laughs> what other tapes do we think they listen to? Or should we should we make a Spotify playlist again? For, for, for the McGill's? The McGill's. <laughs> No, not for the Miggles, for the party. Like, Stacey leaves Claudia with her tapes to pick out which tapes to listen to at the party. Mm. Oh, right. I mean, it's probably similar to, like, our previous Spotify playlists. It's, it's, a, it's a year or two later now. I don't, like... Yeah, and if it's, like, only the tapes Stacey has, not, like, whatever local DJs playing, like, right. radio hits, it might be a little funkier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. We New can, York artists. Mm-hmm. We can, like... And then the one last thing I wanted to touch on about the Hard Rack Cafe is that Isaac, one of the co-founders, was like a devout follower of Sai Baba, who was uh, the second incarnation of this like Hindu um, guru in who living in India. So like he he was like as he heard voices apparently when he was younger, and he always wondered what it was. And as he got older, he was like, oh, it's Sai Baba. And a lot of the Hard Rock Cafe was based in the principles that he had learned hmm. from Sai Baba. And so, like, they're, mon- they're kind of like one of their, um, like, mission statements for Hard Rock, Hard Rock Cafe was love all, serve all. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the classless type of sentiment I was talking about before. And so I, I found their company mission statement. Mm-hmm. And their mission statement is to create a profitable, principled global entertainment company celebrating the diversity and brotherhood of world cultures through music and art, promoting racial and spiritual harmony through love, peace, truth, righteousness, and nonviolence. And, huh. and burgers. And, and cheeseburgers. Of course, yes. And t-shirts. <laughs> right. And like at some point, um, he, Isaac, sold off his portion of Hard Rock Cafe. I think this is... In like 2005 around there mm-hmm. and he gave a lot of the proceeds to Sai Baba and he built this like really huge hospital in India wow interesting yeah I w- so then and do you think Hard Rock Cafe is a is a precursor to all these um like conscious capitalism companies that you end up writing copy for now <laughs> right I mean I don't know if like they were present day companies were influenced by hard rock, but I do think in general, hard rock was like how you were talking before, how it was like a very immersive experience. Mm -hmm. Like this was in 1971. This is when it's open. And like, 
it is like today the whole idea of experience and experiential type of companies and events and restaurants and places are so big. Like you want to go into a place mm-hmm. like whether it's like a makeup store or a grocery store and you kind of want to be in this like other world. Right. And mm-hmm. I think hard rock was really responsible for that. Um, and it was kind of like a revolutionary idea to do at the time in the seventies. Mm-hmm. So I do think that they were, you know, for all these theme restaurants, like all over now, mm-hmm. I guess theme restaurants aren't as big now, like, but we're like rainforest cafe. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> which was also like really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you right? talking about? Burger Garden with the full fully <laughs> suited. That's true. Burger started it so burger garden is basically hard rock cafe and then we don't really get any claudia no claudia candy in this book right because we don't spend any time in real bsc meetings no 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 candy so tallies um stacy doesn't call christy or marianne babyish but she does say immature twice which i wondered if that was sort of a proxy for babyish i noticed that yeah yeah so i counted it um, she calls herself sophisticated twice, which, oh, we didn't get into that whole thing that like Stacy was basically being too cool for school for much of this mm-hmm. book. Um, and until the BSC, the the moment that that changes is when they're in Central Park and they see, oh, my God, it's the best. Hold on. <laughs> this is like my, my favorite moment, but it's too long for a, a great line. Um, oh, but this is one I think maybe you could draw and this guy with his cats. Page 103. I had to admit that what Claudia saw was strange and unusual, even for New York. An old man with a flowing white beard was riding an adult-sized tricycle. Attached to the back of the tricycle was a kid's red wagon, and riding placidly in the wagon were three fluffy white Persian cats. They looked like the man's beard, <laughs> which I which I love as like a little quirky New York symbol. And Stacy's really impressed with it. And then they're all like, "Oh, you actually act like something is interesting. That's the first time you've done that this weekend." And so Stacy has a little lesson in kind of implicit snobbery and the New York kind of. I'm the center of the universe and nothing is new under the sun sort of attitude that I think we've all run into at one point or another as Californians living in New York. So I liked that little lesson to appreciate it. Claudia's eyes are almond shaped again. That's the second time that's come up. Mm-hmm. Dawn is an individual and a health food nut. Um, and then there's really no mentions of Mallory or Jesse because yeah. they're not in this book. They talk about Claudia's perfect skin again. Yeah, they do. But I didn't track that from the beginning, and I'm not going to yeah, go back through it's 19 It's starting books, to so. annoy me. Yeah. <laughs> I like starting. that she said she's never had a pimple and probably never will. Like, how do you know that, Stacey? <laughs> yeah. I hope, there's a, I hope there's a future book called Claudia and Her First Pimple. <laughs> Claudia and Her Big Mistake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want to talk about weirdest lines, Anne? I mean, for me, it was always Philip Mignon. Yeah. That's, I, mean, <laughs> I can't. It's a classic. It just has it to a be. Classic. There are some other really good ones in here, too. I'm not disagreeing that we're, we're I mean, clearly, we're probably going to use Philip Mignon because I agree that it's totally <laughs> a classic. But I did like, there's a reference to a Herbert von Nuffelmacher on yes. page 63. Yes. Very that's good. good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's Oh, that's Claudia, like, getting mad at Lane, right? Yeah, um, trying to flex about the famous people who live in Stony yeah. Brook. Also, can you right. imagine Claudia trying to spell that? Yikes. <laughs> no. So I thought that was really good. I really like when Claudia 
says, Christy, shut up or else tell me why I'm an alleged jerk. And then Stacy has to explain why Claudia knows the word alleged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Claudia may too. not be a great student. She picked up words like alleged from reading Nancy Drew. Yeah, I also liked when um, when Claudia and Lane first start fighting and um, Stacy describes Lane as not one to ignore a snipe attack. Um, mm-hmm. I don't feel like sniping is a, is a verb that I used much as a middle schooler. <laughs> Absolutely no. not. No. No. Yeah, I, I think we got to go fill it, fill it, McNun. Yeah, it's that's just, fine with me. It was, yeah. it was foretold. I, I'm sure anybody that listens to this is expecting it from us. We don't want to let everyone down. What should we <laughs> pizza toast to? Mm-hmm. We could pizza toast to anarchism and housing rights activists. <laughs> <laughs> sure. We could pizza toast to limos, <laughs> locks, and bagels, and the fact that all these kids oh. from Connecticut had never had them before. <laughs> That is oh, yeah. that was unbelievable to me. I feel like they would have had them. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't sure if maybe, you know, I was thinking like waspiness versus Jews, right? And maybe mm. in the 80s they wouldn't have. Interesting. Because maybe Jews hadn't really left the city yet. But I don't, that was my only thought. Like certainly now that would be totally unbelievable. Right. But I wasn't sure if in the 80s it was a little more believable. I'm pleased to pizza toast to locks. Yeah, they, they really made me want a bagel. Oh, yeah, like a real bagel? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I want one now. Emily gets them all the time. I had one yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, but we can pizza toast to locks and bagels. But did you guys call what they did to Jeff a goof call? Is that a No, a prank call. Yeah. Okay. Did, did we call it a prank call with a PN or was it a crank call? I think it was prank call. Okay. Right? I'm not sure. We'll have to also <laughs> consult Melissa. <laughs> right. They probably called it like a stabbing in North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> a stab call. <laughs> a stab call. <laughs> Pizza toast to stab calls. <laughs> Just okay. Locks and bagels? Pizza toast to locks and bagels. Locks to and locks bagels. and bagels. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both the local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling doubly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friend the girl could ask for. <laughs>